Hello, everyone. Welcome to Samantha Politics, a show where we talk about global politics with a focus on women's rights. Uh, we have an amazing show lined up for you today. We've got Stephanie Foster and Susan Markham here from Smash Strategies. They're gender experts, both served in the Obama administration. Uh, really excited to talk about feminist foreign policy with them. Uh, it's been a crazy couple of weeks. I know I haven't seen everyone in a while. Uh, the news today that Trump uh, has COVID, which he belongs to a, uh, I, I now call them, you know how they say climate deniers, I call them COVID deniers, belongs to other COVID deniers like Boris Johnson, who was pre and Bolsonaro Brazil, um, also COVID deniers showing that really nobody is immune from this. We also had the first democratic debate where um, President Trump apparently couldn't wait his turn. I really enjoyed uh, someone saying that instead of Chris Wallace, they really should have hired a mother of like four young children to be the moderator because she would have known how to do it better than Chris Wallace did. I thought that was pretty epic. Um, we also have uh, Azerbaijan and Armenia that are clashing over an area called Nagorno-Karabakh, which is located in Azerbaijan, but the area has mostly been occupied by Armenians. Uh, it's been a source of conflict for the two countries for a really long time. And though this is the most violent kind of upsurgence of violence that we've seen in a really long time in that area. So the other thing that obviously has happened that many of you who care about women's rights know is the passing of uh, Ruth Bader Ginsburg, who was the liberal um, feminist of the Supreme Court and who did so many incredible things in terms of women's rights, whether it was uh, getting women um, uh, access to a credit card without their husband, pushing Congress to install the Lilly Ledbetter Act about equal pay, so many things about women's rights. So the first thing I kind of wanted to talk about before we go into Stephanie and Susan are the, is the new Supreme Court nominee. And so one thing that Trump has done that uh, is really interesting is basically that he uh, picked a woman to replace Ruth Bader Ginsburg. And I think part of that picking a woman was kind of to send the message that, oh, it's another woman. She's the same. Don't worry, I'm a feminist. It couldn't be further from the truth. And so I just want to set the record straight, first of all, not all women are feminists and not all men are anti-feminists. There are plenty of men who are feminists and there are plenty of women who are not feminists. Amy Coney Barrett, not a feminist. So an article came out in Politico that was written by a uh, pro-choice advocate, although she conveniently in her bio didn't put in the fact that she, excuse me, she was not pro-choice. She was an anti-choice advocate, although she conveniently left out of her bio that she does all this work around the Catholic Church, and she's written all these books about basically why Catholic women and you know need to be anti-choice. Um, and she basically made this argument that uh, that Ruth Bader Ginsburg basically invented a style of feminism, and that Amy Coney Barrett was inventing a new brand of feminism. And the rationale was that because Amy Coney Barrett is basically a successful woman that's kind of broken glass ceilings and that her and her husband share caretaking responsibilities and therefore she's a feminist. So I just want to point out how totally and completely ridiculous this is. Um, a, you know, the assumption that, again, just because one woman becoming successful is not feminism. Feminism is about lifting up all women. And 
just the premise of being anti-choice is anti-woman. It is anti-feminist. And that's because there's a million studies that look at women's empowerment and look at the link between reproductive rights and women's empowerment. And the fact is, if I had five kids right now and no access to birth control and no access to abortion services, I wouldn't be here doing this show. I would never have gone to graduate school. And there's a million women who have those stories. If they're not able to control their reproductive health and control when they decide to bear children, their opportunities in life are just much more limited. Um, the other argument that this woman makes, which is like hysterical, was that, well, if if the fathers of those babies or the, you know, of the fetuses just step up to the plate, that's gender equality because they're taking care, taking responsibilities by telling the woman she should keep the baby and then becoming an equal parent. And that was just like so ridiculous of like, oh, so every guy who impregnates a woman is going to step up and all of a sudden become the father and that couple should get married just because they, you know, they have a fetus together. It's, it's, it's unbelievable. Um, so, you know, I, I want to just say like feminism goes much deeper than one woman becoming a Supreme Court justice. It's really about what Ruth Bader Ginsburg did, which was helping feminism, helping women gain equality in all these areas. And it wasn't just about RBG becoming a Supreme Court justice. That's not feminism. It's about everything she did to enable other women to rise. Um, uh, what else did I want to say on this? Um, so yeah, so she also says this, which I think was crazy. This this author says, Justice Ginsburg's brand of feminism will give way to something new, a society in which we will no longer fight over abortion because it will have become irrelevant. So she's claiming that because if if the the father of this fetus steps up to the plate to become a caring parent to the this you know new baby, then therefore people won't need abortions. And that is just the craziest thing. And it denies something that is incredibly true that everyone needs to understand, which is that making abortion illegal does not mean that people stop having abortions. It doesn't because there are a million circumstances in which uh, condoms don't work, not able to access birth control, um, uh, you know, kind of sadistic relationships. There's a million ways in which women will get pregnant. They will keep having abortions. They will just become unsafe abortions. As of right now, Having a medical abortion is less risky than having a colonoscopy. It's not that risky. And that's a medical abortion. That's not even taking the little pill. So this concept that abortion will become irrelevant is just crazy. It's just going to go back into back alley abortions where women are dying from all these things, that babies are dying from all these things. Um, you know, 14-year-old women are, are, are forced to bear a child that their body can't handle and puts them at risk. So... The idea that abortion will become irrelevant ever, it just it just won't. Um, should we do it? I just find it so interesting because this woman could have argued and said, you know, if we had free birth control for everybody and we didn't have all these states that's taught abstinence only education, which, by the way, are also the states with the highest rates of teen pregnancy. And, and, and we had, you know, reproductive rights and we had caretaking for every woman that got pregnant. You know, I could see how our argument might be that abortion will come irrelevant. It still wouldn't, 
but in a in a in a country where there's literally abstinence taught in multiple states we don't have a healthy understanding of sexuality women are not taught about sexuality um it, it's 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 not going to become irrelevant anytime soon. So I just wanted to put that out there for anyone who thinks that Amy Coney Barrett is a feminist. She is not a feminist. She does not say, I, you know, my jurisprudence is right in alignment with Ruth Bader Ginsburg and I'm gonna fight for the equal rights of women. She literally says, my jurisprudence has to do with, uh, with Scalia and Scalia was one of the most conservative justices of the Supreme Court. He voted conservative on almost every issue. That is who she is. So if you look at her and think RBG, no. Look at her and think of Scalia. All right, so end with that rant. I just, that blew my mind. So I wanna bring in my awesome guests. Uh, okay, so I'm gonna give you a little bit of intro to both of them. Um, do, do, do. So Stephanie and Susan are both incredible women. Um, they are the heads of Smash Strategies, which is a strategic advisory firm that helps businesses, nonprofit organizations, and philanthropists who want to leverage their commitment to empowering women and girls. Smash Partners, Stephanie and Susan, bring together decades of collective experience working both internationally and domestically in women's political empowerment and leadership, economic and development policy, and sustainability advocacy. Smash has worked with nonprofit and multilateral clients, including CARE, Save the Children, Vital Voices, UN Women, World Bank Group, Women's Regional Network, One Sky Foundation, and Partners Global. And they also haven't been around for so, so, so long, and they all have a million clients. So Stephanie has worked at the intersection of diplomacy, development, and gender. Until January 2017, she served at the US Department of State, most recently as a senior advisor in the Secretary's Office of Global Women's Issues, where she oversaw the office's work on a wide variety of issues and initiatives. She's also served at the U.S. Embassy in Kabul, Afghanistan, focusing on women in civil society. In both the U.S. and abroad, she has worked extensively to increase core leadership, civic engagement skills, particularly of women, strategic planning, corporate and democratic governance, and project planning and management. Susan Markham most recently served at the U.S. Agency for International Development as the Senior Coordinator for Gender Equality and Women's Empowerment. In this position, she advised agency leadership on gender policy issues, including the implementation of the USAID Gender Equality and Female Empowerment Policy, and coordinated USAID efforts with the Office of First Lady Michelle Obama on the Let Girls Learn initiative. Previously, she worked at NDI, EMILY's List, the Democratic Senatorial Campaign Committee, Participation 2000, and managed and raised funds for five federal and state political campaigns. So I'm super happy to welcome Stephanie and Susan. Hi, ladies. Welcome. Hi. Happy to be here. Happy to have you here. So something that, uh, well, let's, let's start with this. What's on your mind right now? Gosh. Well, um, the world is, there's a lot going on out there in the world. That's for sure. Um, I don't know what's on my mind. I was happy to have you ask us to come on the show to talk about feminist foreign policy, and also just thinking about, as we look forward uh, into the next several years, how we can think about uh, the U.S. and global leadership differently, um, how we can rebuild, uh, and how we can really take this opportunity to be uh, creative in a way, to really not do what we've always done or go back to the way things have been done in the past, but how we can think about really developing a new way, uh, some new ways of interacting with people around the world. Susan, what's on your mind today? 
I just want to go on what you said before um, about uh, the uh, jurist that has been represented and it fits into what we're talking about feminist foreign policy that feminism, as you said, not all women are feminists, not all men um, are against women, but feminism is actually an ideology, you know, right? Gender equality is what feminists believe in. And so um, the way it's been put forward this week with a new form of feminism, you know, it's not a sorority that you join or you, you know, put on the t-shirt. It actually means something. And so um, I think we just need to reclaim that and make sure people understand that when we think that men and women should have equal access to um, to, to the law, to resources, um, to um, not be victims of gender-based violence, that, you know, feminism, re not just use the term, but really claim what stands behind the term um, so that feminism is uh, something that people claim uh, proudly, uh, but it also means something. Did we lose her? Is it our show now, Stephanie? Oh, I think it's our show. We're at okay. I lost the, lost your sound. What happened to it? Um, can you just give me the brief update of what you just said since I missed it? Oh, I removed myself from the stream. Is that what I did? Oh my god. Okay. Can you tell me one more time what you said about the jurists? I just said that um, feminism actually means something, you know, believing in equal rights, believing in equal access to laws and resources, um, and that people can't claim it. It's not like a sorority that you join or get the t-shirt for. That people, you know, that we should claim the fem feminism title um, proudly, but also define what it means so that people can't um, move in. And, you know, certainly this administration has taken a lot of language from the previous administration and there's literally nothing behind it. Um, and so I do feel like this has just been another step where, um, you know, the picture looks good and they use some of the right words, but there's no meaning uh, behind it. So feminism means something. Yeah, and I think today too, feminism, it's not just about lifting up women, it's also about lifting up other marginalized voices. Mm -hmm and giving men more freedom, right? We don't want to be defined by our sex or gender and men shouldn't be either, right? They should be able to do more care work. They should be able to have pictures of their kids. They should be able to show emotion and not be responsible for support, supporting families, right? We need more partnerships where men and women and people of all genders work together uh, for their families and communities. Yeah, absolutely. And I, I love the work of Pro Mundo, which really looks at like healthy masculinity mm -hmm. and the, you know, we've crazy rates of male suicide in the US. Mm -hmm. And I think it's even gotten worse under COVID. Uh, and, you know, in the US, particularly, it's linked to the availability of firearms. But it also has to do with all of these societal constraints, like Promundo has a study called the man box, and the men who ascribe more to rigid norms of masculinity are more likely to be depressed and have suicidal ideation. So, you know, that's trapping men as well. Um, and there's this epidemic of male suicide that is way higher than the number of homicides by firearm, but they're just not, not reported on. So I think that's absolutely a really good point is that it's not just, you know, 
about lifting up women and marginalized voices, it's also about kind of releasing men from this kind of constrained perception of what it means to be a man that they've been stuck in for so long. So, so let's talk about feminist foreign policy. Uh, so, you know, I, I think this is just like the coolest area. I, I mean, I just think it's, it's just so cool. Um, so can you outline what aspects are fundamental to feminist foreign policy as an idea? And I, I want to give the audience just to let let the audience know that you ladies just drafted a beef on what feminist foreign policy would look like operationalized in the United States with One Secure Future. So these are your go to experts on feminist foreign policy for the United States government. Okay. I, oh, there we go. Well, I can start and maybe uh, we'll just go back and forth. We did uh, do a paper last year, late last year, and we're working on an, a new iteration of it, uh, supported by Our Secure Future. And really, uh, the impetus uh, for that were a couple of things that would, I think, be interesting to the audience. One is that there is a growing movement uh, among governments, uh, starting with Sweden in 2015, but other countries as well, to really look at foreign policy uh, through a feminist lens or development policy through a feminist lens. And uh, so Sweden has been the leader. Uh, other countries like France, Mexico, Canada has a feminist development policy. Um, and, and a few others. So I think this is just to say it's part of uh, really a, a move uh, on behalf of governments to really rethink how they how they interact with the world and how they ensure that there's a gender lens and gender analysis embedded in foreign policy. And when we say foreign policy and national security, we're really talking about the three pillars, which are diplomacy in our country, the State Department uh, pretty much is the key for that. Uh, development, which is USAID, and to some extent, the Millennium Challenge Corporation, and then defense, which is DOD, uh, and Homeland Security uh, kind of cuts across some of those. So really looking at how we can uh, look at those institutions and those sectors, uh, those pillars in a way that really uh, does a couple of things, brings in uh, the voices of women and also brings in a gender analysis. So I think those are two really critical points, slightly different. It goes to the point of not every woman is a feminist and not every feminist is a woman. So while certainly there are things we I'm sure we'll talk about later in terms of the need for more women in leadership positions and all of these institutions, uh, there's also a need for there to be a gender analysis baked into the way that we develop policy, the way we uh, create you know, these documents that end up being the basis for how decisions get made at the highest levels all the way up to the president, uh, and that we ensure that there is that kind of analysis uh, throughout the system, uh, these systems, these bureaucracies, and these, uh, you know, these institutions. The other thing I would say is that part of the reason our secure future was so interested in us working on the paper is that we know there's been kind of a, a through line uh, in addition to what Sweden has done at the government, sort of governmental diplomacy level, uh, really there has been a through line since the Beijing conference uh, to the Women, Peace and Security Movement, um, UN Security Council Resolution 1325, um, and all the resolutions that have come after it, and all the work there, uh, predominantly done by from the grassroots up, women on you know saying to uh, international bodies, we really, we want to be part of the process. We have agency, we have voice, 
and we want our views to be uh, really at the table as decisions are made uh, in conflict, post-conflict, uh, prevention of conflict situations. And so really feminist foreign policy in a lot of ways builds on that. And you can see a lot of uh, similar themes about women's agency, about consulting uh, the people who are affected by our policy, about listening to them, ensuring that we are taking steps uh, as diplomats, as development professionals, uh, to really do outreach uh, in country and, and here in the US, of course, uh, as well, to hear the voices and views of people who will be affected by our policy. So I think that's a brief uh, sort of summary. And I don't know, maybe Susan, you wanna talk a little bit about some of the other work that's been going on in the field and how our paper fits into that. Sure, I just wanted to say um, two key points of this is that I do think though it continues the line through women, peace, and security um, and expands beyond the three Ds of diplomacy, defense, and development. Really looking at other parts of the government that should be considered part of feminist foreign policy. Um, one is certainly with uh, global health now, and I think COVID has made that clear, um, but also trade issues. Um, the issue of climate change and how that impacts people around the world and certainly refugees and, and that, and um, also reproductive rights. Oftentimes we've held um, women's sexual and reproductive health separate, but um, as Samantha said in the beginning, it is so linked to women's economic and political empowerment um, that we can't ignore it anymore when we're talking about foreign policy. And then another unique aspect of feminist foreign policy is really linking domestic and international efforts. So matching up what the US is saying and preaching abroad. Um, and so I think that's really a key aspect of that, that we're actually walking the walk um, when we're going to other countries and encouraging them um, to do certain things around our foreign policy. Um, there have been other efforts. There have been great papers um, out this year from um, the Council on Foreign Relations. Um, ICRW did some early work on defining what a feminist foreign policy is. And then a group of us came together um, a year ago to write kind of a blue sky paper of what feminist policy is. Um, it is very forward leaning um, and the um, it had a lot of consultations with people around the world as well as in the US. And that paper just came out in June. Um, and so that's available. It's called Towards a Feminist Foreign Policy. Uh, I think what's different about the work that Stephanie and I are doing is that we're really focused on the operationalizing. What we bring is the experience in the government. And so we like to take these ideas and explain to our former colleagues um, who used to work with us in previous administrations and in these organizations, how would that actually work, right? This isn't some far-fetched Swedish scheme, right? It could work in the US government. And I think the two first steps, which um, have already started in the government and outside during um, these past four years are increasing women's representation and, and expanding the use of gender analysis. So we're already walking towards it. We're just trying to put a name on it and uh, make some people responsible for it. So I want to go back to what you were saying about, um, you know, that we walk the walk. So, you know, as I look at all the feminist foreign policy things, I just keep thinking, what about feminist domestic policy? And and do we need a feminist like domestic 
policy agenda also that like works like I don't, do do we have one I, I have no idea So I would say, I mean, one of the things, as Susan said, is that, you know, there's been a lot of discussion um, in the last couple of years about the fact that we can't be an effective leader abroad, we, the United States of America, um, are as effective if we don't align um, our, our foreign policy with our domestic policy in terms of exactly what Susan said, really looking at if we're saying to people, uh, you need to follow the rule of law. You need to change these laws around domestic violence or economic empowerment. Um, you need to ensure that everyone has equal access to justice. It's very hard for us to be as effective making those arguments um, as we could be if we are not doing the same at home. And so I think it's a new kind of, not a realization, although I think I've been very uh, struck by how many people who are traditional foreign policy and national security experts are now saying that. I think it has to be much more that this is, you know, foreign policies on one side of the table, domestic policies over here, and that there aren't linkages made. I, I will say, I think we saw through the Trump administration um, that, you know, President Trump did link uh, in, in a lot of ways, those issues, immigration, border security, sort of, he made that linkage. And I think we see that people, I think are more, have more of an appetite for a linkage. Not that I agree with his analysis of the issues, but I think we are coming to a point where there's much more of an understanding that we have to uh, look at these issues in parallel. And to your question about, um, do we need a feminist domestic policy? I mean, I think there are a lot of groups that do that. I think one of the things that we've struggled with in the paper and in conversations is, uh, you know, how in a, an administration that is more amenable, perhaps, to this kind of foreign policy, um, how that would be coordinated, right? Because I think there are just a lot of different things going on and how you make sure that there is a consistent kind of policy across all of the uh, different agencies that actually take it on. Um, I will say when I was in the Clinton administration uh, many, many years ago and was on the President's Interagency Council on Women, uh, we did an, a report. It was uh, right after the Beijing conference. It was five years after Beijing, where each agency of the U.S. government, no matter who they were, wh what agency, whether it was HHS, state, uh, OMB, uh, you know, Office of Personnel Management had to outline what they had done internally at their agency to meet commitments under the Beijing platform. So I think we've been doing this in fits and starts. And the good news is, I think this is a time where there's much more of a realization more broadly in the foreign policy kind of uh, big thinker community that we should be doing this, that we really need to be uh, paying attention to the consistency between our domestic and foreign policy. And if I, I think a key aspect of that is the definition of the word security. For a long time in the foreign policy space, it was defined um, as my good Don, my good friend Don Steinberg used to say, you know, men and guns talking to other men and guns about and guns. And so, um, <laughs> I, love that, I mean, that was so limited, but that's when you sat down at the yeah. negotiating table, that's who was there and that's what they talked about. And so, President Trump has talked about personal security. Do you feel safe? And when we talk to women around the world, that's what they talk about. They don't talk, I mean, sometimes they do, um, unfortunately, talk about their army 
or the police, but they talk about being able to walk home safely, right? Are there lights? Do I feel that I can go out of my home? Do I feel safe sending my kids to school? Am I going to have enough food next week or next month? And so really expanding this idea of what security means and taking into account, as we've said before, healthcare, access to good wages, having food security, um, you know, being able to see a doctor when they want to expand that really um, expands what foreign policy means and what we do in other countries, but it also links it a lot to what we're experiencing here at home. Um, so I think that's really important too. Yeah, I, I just spoke yesterday, I was talking to one of the managing partners of Gallup polling, and he was saying that in the Western world, the most important concern for women is equal pay. And in developing countries, the most important concern for women is personal security and safety. So, you know, it is absolutely a huge issue. And, and there's also been this like, you know, it used to be hard security versus human security. And there was, I don't even know if there was a term human security, like it was just hard security. And then all of a sudden it was like, oh, there's another aspect to security besides like protecting our nation's borders or fighting for more territory. Um, so I, I think those are, you know, all really, really good points. Um, and, and then, you know, the point about, you're right, I think that the foreign policy circle is seeing how things like, you know, us having Trump clear Lafayette Square with tear gas and flashbangs so we could hold a thing up with the Bible. And then you go to China and they're putting down the Hong Kong protests. And guess what? The Chinese are like, you can't tell us what to do with human rights. Look at what you did yesterday. Like you're, you're pulling people into unmarked vans with by guys that nobody knows who they work for but they're clearly working for the the federal government like i mean how, how are we listening to you and so you know our our concept of being able to promote human rights abroad has been so unbelievably tarnished and hurt by this administration and i really wonder how long is it going to take to get that reputation back like when are countries going to start trusting us again and being like oh you have a leg to stand on when it comes to human rights because you actually treat your people well so anyway, just small tangent. Um, I wish we had an answer for that. Yeah. Um, so one of the things that I find really interesting in the foreign policy space is, is this uh, U.S. policy of arms assistance. So that, you know, whenever we have, it goes back to, I'm sure before the Taliban, but, you know, has backfired so many times on us of, okay, there's this rebel group that's fighting our enemy and so we're going to provide them with weapons and arms to fight the enemy. So in Afghanistan, it was the Taliban giving them arms to fight the Russians. And then obviously what happened, the Taliban turned against us using our own weapons. So, and yet at the same time, there's so many nonviolent protesters around the world that really need help, but it seems like the US government doesn't really know how to necessarily help them without giving them guns. It's like, no, 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 we don't want guns, we're nonviolent. So, you know, I'm wondering your thought on just the use of of arms assistance as like a a really like a stronghold of, of American foreign policy. And is that against feminist foreign policy and does it work? Well, I mean, I would say a couple things to back up on that before kind of getting to that question, because I think there's a lot in there that um, is important to talk about. I mean, I think we certainly know from listening to people in the military generals who will say if i have you know 
General Mattis is a famous thing. If you give me more bullets, I'm, I'm not going to be able to use them if people are not able to practice diplomacy, right? We need to go to diplomacy first. And I think um, that's not something that maybe we see on the on TV, right? When we think about conflict and how to address conflict, we are always looking at these very, um, or often looking at very militarized situations like in Afghanistan, where in reality, you know, even I think military leaders would say and understand that diplomacy is your first line of, of uh, kind of interaction and development assistance where we use it. And so I think that's really important. Um, we do obviously, you know, in a lot of places we sell arms to people and you know, should we be doing that every time we do? Probably not. In some cases, yes. In some cases, no. But I think one of the goals of the way we think about uh, those kind of policy decisions is to really ensure that as decision makers are looking at those decisions, that one of the things they look at, not the only thing, and um, I think this is an important point, but one of the things they look at is the impact that that decision will have on women and girls or on um, broader swaths of the population so that they're not just talking to the guys with guns or the guys who want guns, like in this case, uh, but they're really seeking out information through diplomacy, through uh, conversations with civil society, through uh, all the other ways that we kind of gather information about what impact uh, our decisions would have on women and girls. And I think that is a really important piece of information or sort of analysis of information that needs to go into every decision that gets made. Um, and a couple of the things we talked about in our, uh, our sort of next iteration of the paper is to really look at in some of the situations where we have reporting that's consistent and we've been doing it for many years, like in the human rights report or the anti-trafficking report to really uh, refresh or one might say rebuild uh, reporting on what is actually going on in countries with respect to women's access to justice, with respect to women's access to health care, with respect to uh, women's access to uh, the economy. In, in some places, there are constraints on what women can do or they're forced to work in certain places. So I think really important around any of these issues is to understand that we want to give decision makers this very powerful additional tool and ensure that it's used consistently, which is what is the impact on women and girls and how we actually ensure that that gets put again into the process, right, into the system so that um, if people go in and out of government um, and you have somebody who's very committed to this issue of having a gender analysis and thinking about the world in a much more gendered way, uh, once they leave government, our goal is not that the analysis or the commitment leaves government too. It needs to be uh, baked into the way that the bureaucracy functions so that it's a regular course of conversation. So that when not only people in the executive branch make decisions, but when people in the legislative branch are passing laws and doing oversight, that they're also asking those questions. And it's a really important tool uh, that we think it's important for decision makers to have as they make these decisions on behalf of the American people. Right. There's been research done by ha uh, Valerie Hudson and others. Um, there's a great book out several years ago called Sex and World Peace. And there's research from across um, uh, different sectors. But what it comes down to is the way that a country treats 
it's women and girls, whether it's through gender-based violence, the age of marriage, uh, the average age of first birth. Um, the worse women and girls are off in that country, the more likely that country is to enter into armed conflict and disregard international treaties. And so there is data out there that shows this is the case, and yet we aren't linking that sort of information um, to our development assistance, to those that we fear um, are, are, are not stable, um, or to other conflicts. So we really need to, to link um, that research and collect the data and then bring it back into the decision-making through gender analysis. And I would also say, although not strictly feminist, um, we will also, um, in our paper, think about the rebalancing. Um, I think what leads to us selling arms as an answer is when our um, foreign policy, all the levers of foreign policy are not used equally. And so if we increase development assistance and diplomacy, we would have less need for the defense and the less need for arms sales. Not all feminists are pacifists, but we think a, a look and an analysis and a rebalancing of our foreign policy needs to take place. Certainly in a new administration, we would need to think about working with allies and collaborating with people around the world. You know, we can't just turn off our computer and say it's just us alone anymore. You know, we're, re we're, uh, we're connected through security issues, through economic issues, political issues, and so we can't ignore that anymore. And then finally, um, a reinvestment um, about multilateral organizations, which are not perfect. Um, I don't think anyone would say they are, but we have, they've kept us at peace um, since the end of World War II, and we need to make sure that we continue to work um, with our allies, and quite frankly, in some cases, with those who don't wish the best for the US, to make sure that we, we keep peace around the United States, I mean, around the world, um, for the benefit of everyone, right? It helps us all when we are not spending so much money on, on arms and conflict. Yeah. One thing I find staggering is that the Pentagon has more armed service members serving in marching bands than there are diplomats in the U.S. State Department. That like blows my freaking mind. And just things like, you know, you know, I, you know, we're, we're D.C. people. It's like, you know, I see my military friends. They are getting to go to school for free and they're getting to, you know, they were military fellows in my class at, at Fletcher and people from the State Department don't have the same opportunities. There's not the same level of professional development in the State Department um, as there is in the in the military. And that's just from my own. I mean, you're both you've both served in state um, or as much money. Um, so, you know, when we talk about investment, like it's also thinking about our military budget is so bloated. It's more than the next seven nations combined in terms of military spending for the US. You know, and that was also under Obama. Obama increased increased military spending and yet the State Department budget stayed flat. So how do we like shake up things from a financial perspective and like will president uh, a president Biden actually do that because the US is so obsessed with the military? Well, I, should, I just don't want to say not to invest in defense personnel. I think other than taking away some of their opportunities, we would need to invest um, more in all of our, our federal employees, right? All the opportunity, the, 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 the um, history and um, structure of continuing education in our military is quite impressive. Um, I would say we just need to integrate gender issues and women peace security issues into 
Democrats and that they continue to grow as, you know, kind of whole soldiers, but give the State Department, give USAID the opportunities to do this. You know, we have USAID, I, we, I haven't been there in two years, but um, <laughs> USAID University exists. We do have online classes. State Department has the Foreign Service Institute where people can continue to learn. So I don't want to derail that. I think it's more, we have more nuclear weapons, right? We can blow up blow up the world a hundred times. We continue to buy um, military gear. And, and I think a lot of that is the tradition in the United States. Um, we were founded, you know, with a military, um, but also some of it has to do with Congress, right? They don't want the money that comes into their district, um, whether it's from military bases or defense contractors to go away. And so even when the Defense Department has tried to rebalance and say, we don't need this anymore, individual members of Congress have worked hard to keep it in because that's how they um, bring home jobs and, and money to their district, quite frankly. Yeah, I heard it was called, I think it was called pork barreling. Is that the right term? Something like that? Oh my gosh, you're so young. <laughs> No, isn't that the term? Military, but, you know, way back when Well, but this this whole idea that, you know, if, if there's military stuff being made in somebody's district, that if they vote against military spending, then they don't, they're taking away jobs in their district and therefore they could lose, you know, their office. What I wonder is, is I've been, you know, looking at a lot of climate climate change stuff lately about, you know, could clean energy jobs potentially if we have this huge, you know, Biden has said he would invest $1.7 trillion into a clean energy economy. Could maybe some of these clean energy jobs potentially like, could we move some of these like, I make weapons that the US doesn't even need and like transition them into solar energy or something. It's just a hypothesis or idea. And transportation, right? And in, yeah. we have a lot of things that have been underfunded, as you said, not just for four years, but for decades. And we need to take some of those resources and put them back into our workers and our country's basic infrastructure, um, how we do better. I mean, and not just the physical infrastructure, as you were talking about with manufacturing, as we've referenced before, healthcare and childcare and other safety nets that it's become so apparent over the six months that individual people cannot respond to a pandemic on their own, right? There's no family or neighborhood group that's gonna fix this. We really need a federal response. Yeah, and I think, you know, it's important to say, and then this is important with defund the police too. Like, it's not about defunding. It's not like, okay, we're gonna to totally take all the money away from the police and shut down police departments or totally just the military budget is zero. It's just looking seriously at like, what are our needs? And also I think what's so interesting too is thinking about, the COVID pandemic as a national security issue and that you can't fight COVID with tanks and guns and nuclear weapons. It doesn't work. But why is that not important to our nation's security? We've had 200 plus thousand people die of COVID. And how many have we had die in war? Isn't it like, I mean, it's way more than Vietnam at this point. So, you know, you know, this idea of, of and I think it's because it seems more like a human security issue. It's like softer, you know, healthcare is like softer. It's like taking care of people, and, but you can't do it with guns this time. Um, so, you know, hopefully, I think people are starting to realize that COVID is a national security issue, that it's not just, and same with climate change, 
that it's not just a human security issue. I think that's right. I mean, I think that, you know, look, we are in the middle of a lot of crises at one time and um, which is a really, it's tough. And, um, you know, with, I think, not a great response uh, at the federal level. But I do think what a lot of this brings out, and I think there's so much more appetite to think about how do, um, how do we build back better? Uh, I know that's an often used phrase and, you know, what does it mean? But I think it means uh, as we're looking forward uh, into the future, not to think about just kind of going back to what things were like five or 10 years ago, but really thinking about how do we meet the challenges of these multiple challenges uh, in a much more creative way. And I think there's much more of an appetite for that in terms of the people who, again, are these great you know, minds and thinkers in foreign policy and national security. And so that I think is a positive step forward. It's horrible to have had to go through a pandemic um, where people have, I think, unnecessarily been infected and died um, to teach us that. But I think uh, the climate change issue teaches us that. COVID has taught us that. And I also think this just this growing realization that foreign policy is not just about government to government conversations in capitals across the world, which is important. I mean, that is certainly the, the foundation of diplomacy, but it's also about public diplomacy, which, you know, talking to citizens um, about what's going on in their country. You know, we, we see things in the United States. It's about multilateralism, really working together to you know, figure out how to solve problems together. And I think it's really hard to deny in this world, which is so globally connected by, by technology and now by, un, unfortunately, by crises like climate change and COVID and, and other health crises, uh, that we aren't interconnected and that we need to really start thinking about how to figure out what's worked in places and use that knowledge for everybody's benefit. Because in general, we, you know, we need security in terms of making sure that countries um, have the ability to provide jobs uh, for people, that there's access to healthcare, education, legal services, all the things that are the foundations of democracy and, and democratic um, kind of institutions. And it's really hard to do that if you don't have clean air and water, if people are scared to go out of their houses all the time in the pandemic, um, it's really hard to do that. And we all are now, I think, seems pretty clear to me, there's much more of a realization that we're all interconnected. And we really need to take that to the next level and figure out how to build that realization into what we do to really look at how to restructure foreign policy, national security across the board. You know, we are talking about feminist foreign policy. There are other people talking about progressive foreign policy. I mean, there are lots of other people who are out there right now thinking about different ways to really restructure, which I think is really healthy because we need all of that thinking um, as we look forward and figure out how to really get to a place where we can both make our country secure and prosperous and our citizens secure and prosperous, but also be able to really live in a, a world that has the same, you know, people have that same opportunity where they are, because in the end, that's good for us. Um, we need other countries to be safe and secure so that we can be safe and secure. Yeah, absolutely. I, I liked, I think Chris Murphy said something about um, 
you know, we always deploy military to a conflict, which, you know, makes sense, but that like, we don't deploy conflict resolution experts. And yet there's all these people around the world that specialize in conflict resolution. And, you know, there's only one uh, UN peace envoy to every peace agreement. So, you know, why are we not deploying conflict resolution experts? Or why is the military doing things like rebuilding in the post-conflict phase? Great at operations, but like from a, like a actual like rebuilding human security, like they have no idea what they're doing. Or like, you know, stakeholder engagement of involving women and girls and the conversations about how do you rebuild? Like, I don't think they're doing that. Um, which brings me, you know, I I'd love to talk about, you have both been really talking a lot about the Afghan peace process. Um, and the importance of women in the peace process. And the whole peace process has been just so interesting because the Taliban obviously has no women negotiators on their side and they've, they're extremely anti-women and extremely anti-women's rights. Um, and I think, I think it's something like, like four out of the 21 negotiators are women. Is that the right stats now? Something like that. So, you know, in our efforts to get out of this war that we've been in forever and to finally bring all of our troops home, why is it important that women are involved in that peace process? Talk a little bit about that. Um, I, I think, and Susan has also worked a lot in Afghanistan. I was there at the embassy and worked on women and civil society issues, as you said at the beginning. And, you know, what we know from just broadly from the research is that when women are engaged in peace negotiations, again, whether that's as negotiators, mediators, uh, outside, you know, kind of uh, outside experts, signatories, the peace agreement lasts longer. That's, that's what the research shows us. And, you know, they last from like two to 15 years longer, which when you're in the middle of a war, two to 15 years is a really long time. And I think most people in conflict situations would be happy to have um, conflict cease for a couple of years, at least, and even longer. So just that's a fundamental and foundational thing we know generally uh, from the research. And so taking that to where we are today, we have the Women, Peace and Security Act, which was signed into law by President Trump after many, many years of advocacy uh, to be really thinking about the history, obviously, since 1325, uh, which was uh, which was quite a while ago, it was 15 years ago, um, or 20, I guess, uh, 20 years ago, that really there's been a march forward on how to institutionalize uh, that work within governments across the globe, including the US. And so we have a Women, Peace and Security Act, which mandates that, one of the things it mandates is that we promote the role of women in peace processes. Um, I would say that I think, um, the only reason there are four women at the, well, there are several reasons there are four women on the government delegation uh, for Afghanistan. One is the women themselves have been incredibly effective advocates for uh, making the case that they need to be at that table because obviously women's rights are a fundamental issue uh, as the Afghan government and the Taliban are looking to negotiate a peace accord. Um, the Afghan government and the Afghan constitution um, has a red line around women's rights. Um, and that has been something that the Afghan government has really, um, you know, has, has held to, I mean, not to say it's been perfectly sort of uh, implemented as a, as a policy in Afghanistan. There's obviously still a tremendous amount of violence in, against women and discrimination, but that is in the constitution. The Taliban on the other hand is, you know, has now come to say that uh, women can participate in society, but only under 
uh, the strictures of what Sharia law would um, would allow. And, uh, kind of a, up, up in the air, what, what does Sharia law allow? They're saying girls can go to school, but maybe only in madrasas where um, very strict Islamic teachings are what girls learn. So um, this is kind of a big issue in these peace talks, the role of women uh, in Afghan society, protecting the gains that, Af that Afghan women have made. And so I think women themselves, Afghan women themselves have been tremendous advocates for their own role in the peace process. And over the last couple of years, they've been uh, active in the, uh, the various jirgas and gatherings that have happened uh, as a precursor to the actual um, formal negotiations. And that's been really important. I also think um, members of the US Congress, both Republicans and Democrats have pushed hard uh, for the uh, engagement of Afghan women in the peace process. I think last year it was, there was a letter signed by 72 or three House members, both Republicans and Democrats, around the importance of women's engagement in the peace process and the importance of protecting the gains that women have made in Afghanistan. And certainly on the Senate side, Senator Shaheen and others have been very, very active in pushing Secretary Pompeo and before uh, that Secretary Tillerson about engaging women in Afghan women in the peace process uh, or in Afghan society writ large. So I, I'm glad the four women are there. Um, it's a tremendous burden on them. If I heard an interview with a couple of them on uh, National Public Radio last week where they said they feel such a tremendous responsibility to other women in Afghanistan to, to do the right thing. And that's a huge burden to put on four women in this room full of men. I mean, granted, there are probably other women experts there and women staff, but that's a really big burden. And so I think it's incumbent on us as people who care about this issue. And I do think there are people within the US government who care about the issue. Um, and have worked on it for many years and really are fighting for women to be at the table, that we do what we, you know, we say we should do, what the law tells us to do, um, which is that to promote the role of women at the peace table. That's what the Women, Peace and Security Act says. Um, and there are women at the table now because really, I, I would say that the Afghan women pushed for it and people in the Congress pushed for it and, there, and some people inside the US government executive branch push for it. But, you know, it was a fight. Uh, it's been a fight for the last couple of years to get women at the table so that they have the ability to participate in the decisions that are going to be made about their lives. Can, 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 I, can I just brief tangent? Why is there only one woman on the Senate Foreign Relations Committee? What is the deal? Like, I literally don't, I was looking at the, the thing last night and it was like, She's one out of how many? Like 20 or something? You're muted, Steph. Yeah, okay. So last year, or last, um, last session, there were four women on the committee. I think they either uh, left Congress or left the Senate, were defeated, et cetera. Uh, and Jean Shaheen remains the only woman uh, through that, you know, through the committee, um, on the committee now. Um, one other interesting thing, and maybe Susan, you want to talk a little bit about this, is we went and we did an article in The Hill uh, over the summer talking about how congressional foreign relations committees, Senate foreign relations and House Foreign Affairs Committee are really um, using women experts and what the data shows on whether or not um, women experts are being called by those committees in uh, 
inappropriate numbers. So maybe that's just a good teaser. Well, I think what it really showed is because, you know, who makes foreign policy? And so we looked at the non-governmental witnesses because obviously they have to call the government person that's most appropriate. But when they had the opportunity to call other foreign policy experts, you know, what percent um, were women? And we looked over two of the last sessions and, you know, it was the high was 42 percent. Most likely it was around 30 percent. Quite frankly, it was better than what we had expected when we went in. Um, but the good news is, is that it got some attention on the Hill and both um, male members on the House and Senate side have reached out to us and said, what can we do? What can we do to make this better, um, both in gender and diversity more broadly? So what did you say to them? Well, we said there are certain things that you can do um, to the, the pool that they come out of is largely DC based think tanks. And mm that came out last year that showed those think tanks overwhelmingly are white and male themselves. Right. So for someone that they kind of know their background, they don't have to pay for them to travel and they can get here in a short distance, they go to the DC think tanks. So the think mm. diversify who they are. But they could also create um, you know, informal quotas or guidance on how to get a more diverse um, uh, expert pool. And they could also work with the Congressional Research Service and integrate gender into that work so that when they get the background paper for the committee hearing, they're already thinking about gender issues and not just with regard to, quote, you know, issues that disproportionately impact women's issues like gender based violence or women, peace and security, but really thinking more broadly about foreign policy issues and how gender should be a part of, of every committee hearing. Right. I really loved the point you made about how bride price can affect terrorist recruitment. I mean, that was just a really interesting little gendered. Can you can you just dive into what that means? And so so just saying for the audience, it's like, you know, if you're looking at why are terrorists being recruited, they actually found a link between when a bride price is low. Let me let me let you explain it, Susan or Stephanie, so I don't mess it up. I'm, I'm, okay, there we go. Um, you know, the whole idea of bride price for people who don't know is that obviously it, it's the whole um, practice in some countries where you, you pay for a bride. I mean, it, it, it's horrible to talk about. I really even just, the words just really kind of creep me out. Or weddings are very expensive. You know, in a lot of parts of the world, uh, it's very expensive to get married and that cost, um, falls often to the, the family of the, of the man. And so if you look at those practices, if, if it's really expensive to engage in what is considered to be the, the way that you, you know, start a family, uh, really integrate into, into society, um, then if families don't have that, those resources or that money, um, they then, the, those, the men in those families can often kind of be adrift, right? They're not tied to social structures. Uh, the family, the community, sort of all the things that we think about that you do when you're part of a community. And so that can actually, when you have large numbers of men um, who don't have jobs, if they're in, in countries where economies or communities where economies are not really able to support a lot of jobs, um, they aren't tied to their community through family, through marriage, um, they're much more likely to be potential recruits for uh, terrorist organizations. I will say that some women as well are recruited and do join, but it's obviously predominantly men 
And so those are the kind of things that certainly Valerie Hudson has written about that in her book, the book that Susan mentioned, um, Earlier Sex and World Peace. And she has a project called the Women, Women's Stat Project, which is, has a website where she and the researchers she works with around the country and I think around the globe, look at these unusual connections. Uh, what are the unusual kind of correlations that we see in countries between these types of issues that can really be important in having a conversation about uh, stability and security. So for uh, others who are interested in learning more about her project, uh, I think it's womanstats.org. Um, but anyway, she has a whole set of data sets uh, that she and her colleagues have really kind of manipulated and looked at uh, to really look for those kind of correlations that are unusual. And I should say, there's one military in the Middle East, I can't remember what country, but they, if you are a single man and in their military, if you wish to get married, they will pay for your wedding because wow. they understand the importance of creating a family and how that helps prevent um, terrorist recruitment. Wow. And that's, I mean, it's just, it's just such a good highlight of why we need to look at you know, women and girls when we're looking at security issues. Um, so I think that's a just a, a really great example. I remember when I was looking at like female suicide bombers and that was like a kind of, they would get past checkpoints because they have, you know, more things. So if you took a gendered approach, you're like, okay, well, we can't have male guards searching religious women wearing hijabs. So we have to get more women security uh, guards at checkpoints that can then search these women in order to find those types of suicide suicide bombers um so this has been an amazing hour i am so appreciative of both of you for coming on uh and uh yeah hopefully the you know provide you with the replay to share um is any last words about you know anything Well, I'm, I just did something weird. So Susan, go ahead. Stephanie, you didn't actually do something weird, but I, I would like to say one thing that today brings about um, with regard to COVID and the president is just this idea that COVID um, is a national security issue. And the fact that he did not keep himself safe um, really endangered the whole country. Um, you know, our allies and our um, adversaries are both looking very closely about how um, our, go our government is being governed right now and this, um, the situation with the president. And so I think, um, once again, his focus on himself and his political message has really made this country um, more unsafe than it was yesterday. Um, and so, once again, national security foreign policy is much bigger than, um, you know, just guns and the army. It really has to do with this holistic view of, of our country, the values that we have. I hate to say, and it's like, I mean, it's just so funny for him to like, I mean, it's not funny, but like for him to make fun of Biden in the debate, and Biden's always wearing that mask, you know, like basically saying like, what a pussy. I mean, that was, that was his subtask. And then he gets it two days later, and he was apparently taking pictures with his supporters at some golf course in New Jersey. Like, he's the super spreader. Like, he literally could be a super spreader. You know, it's, 
I just, yeah, I can't. I just can't. <sighs> I think the last thing I would say, kind of back to the beginning of our conversation or maybe throughout is that I, I, the reason I think this conversation that we had tonight is so important and all the conversations that people are having about how do we look out at the world as Americans um, in a different way in, in this new era of multiple crises of global connections being so clear to um, people. And, and at, at a time also where I think people are willing uh, to look at the world differently and to listen to new voices and to understand that we have to do that to be, first of all, secure and safe at home, um, to be an effective leader abroad, uh, but also to ensure that the policies that we are, um, you know, implementing past laws that are being passed, how they're being implemented uh, in the State Department and AID and defense are the most effective they can be. I mean, this is all about effectiveness. Um, obviously, I'm a strong believer in gender equality, or I wouldn't have been doing this <laughs> for a long time. But the reason I think feminist foreign policy and all these other new sort of conversations are important is that we're all, I think, searching for how to be, how to build policies that are the most effective they can be uh, to keep us safe and secure and to interact with the world in a way where we can truly be a global leader. Yeah. And, 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 you know, one thing I didn't explain for the audience, which we probably should have, is what a gender analysis is, since we talked about it. But it's basically looking at something and saying, okay, how does this affect men, women, boys, and girls differently? And how does, how does that play into everything? Um, is that a good way of putting it? So I'm just like, we mentioned it like 50 times and didn't actually talk about it. So how does, you know, how does COVID affect men versus women differently? Um, and another thing that Susan brought up in our pre-conversation that was interesting is that a report just came out today that said that um, one out of every four women is thinking about leaving the workforce or taking less a role in her job because of COVID and caretaking responsibilities and even one in five men. And then there was another aspect that you pointed out, Susan. I was just saying in today, Josh reports is actually playing out that one quarter of all people who've actually stopped searching for a job are women um, in the US right now. Um, over the past month because of these other issues with regard to childcare and, and kids not being in school, um, they don't have the luxury to, to go back to the workforce. Um, they were disproportionately impacted by the unemployment um, that happened in March because of small businesses clothing, closing, and now they're, they're not able to join the workforce back because of these societal um, barriers that exist. Mm. Well, this has been tremendous. I'm super grateful for both of you for not only for coming on my show, but also of shaping feminist foreign policy and what it would look like in the U.S. government. I mean, it gives me chills. Like, I mean, if that, I mean, do you think it's actually going to happen? Like, is there enough political will to do a feminist foreign policy, even if Biden's elected? Look, I'll say this, what, the way that we have structured this next iteration of our paper and the way that a lot of people are talking about it is there are lots of little steps that add up to a big thing, um, which is a different way of thinking about foreign policy. I think a lot of those steps are things that both Republicans and Democrats agree on, um, the need for more women at the table. As we did interviews for this paper, that was the thing that 
everyone that we interviewed agreed with it. Republicans, Democrats, it didn't matter. Like everyone agreed we need more women in leadership. That doesn't translate to a different policy, certainly, but it, you know, I think that's a, it's fundamentally uh, different than it was even 10 or 15 years ago. But I think there are lots of other things that we have identified that can happen. Everything you know, from embedding a gender analysis requirement into papers that go through the system, changing the performance evaluation process so that uh, people are judged on um, criteria around, you know, do they engage in a behavior that is, you know, discriminatory towards their colleagues? Um, things about how we think about hiring, who do we consider to be an expert? There are lots of, I don't, they're not really little, but there are lots of discrete things that I think can happen, you know, that we elevate the person at the National Security Council who's responsible for gender and foreign policy. Um, that's a very concrete thing that can happen and it's important because it raises the profile. So we have come up with a lot of things that I think could happen. Um, you know, does that equal a feminist foreign policy? Uh, maybe. Um, but I think the reality is that what we're saying is that these are very concrete things that can be done to move us towards that. Mm. And I think, you know, I certainly, I only speak for myself. I'm pretty clear eyed, like we are not Sweden and I, we're not asking us to be Sweden. You know, we're saying this is the government we have. This is who we are. We're a global leader. And but there are certain things that we can do to ensure that we have a more diverse, a more representative and a more robust uh, worldview around gender as we develop our policy and that we give our bosses, right, the people who we work for, whether they're senators or secretaries of state or presidents, the key information about the impact that policies have on men, women, boys and girls, uh, because they deserve that information. And if we don't give it to them, I actually think we're shirking our responsibility as professionals. Right. And that's what Cynthia Enloe always used to say is that if you don't, if you don't do a gender analysis, your analysis will be wrong. But whatever you come up with, your 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 problem, your solution to the problem, if you don't embed a gender analysis, it's not going to be the right solution. It's not going to work. So, uh, you know, going back to what you said about effectiveness, that doing a gender analysis is about being effect more effective. And business and government love effectiveness and efficiency. Just one thing, which I can never let Stephanie have the last word, is just this idea. <laughs> That, um, what about Lawrence O'Donnell? No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> um, it's just this idea that I think the struggle is, is that we have so many crises going on right now, whether it's economic or with COVID. Um, and so this whole idea about building back better, the new administration is going to have a lot of work to do. Um, our main push is to not say we'll get to gender after we fix these issues. Integrate gender analysis to think about who's making the decisions when we're building back better. So right from the beginning, um, gender is part of the way that we're building back better, and it's not something that we're going to talk about, you know, in year three. Uh, and I think that's why us and others who are working on this issue—that's a, a main issue that we have. And I, I definitely think the Biden administration is open to that. Uh, we just need to keep pushing because it will help us build back even better than just better. Awesome. Thank you so much. A privilege and a pleasure. Uh, I just, I could talk to you ladies for hours. Uh, so I will see you both soon. Thanks again. Uh, well, were those ladies amazing or were those ladies amazing? Uh,
I could talk to them literally for hours about this stuff. There were so many issues that we didn't even get to, uh, but I feel pretty good that they're the ones advising on how to operationalize this in the U.S. And, you know, after talking to them, I feel pretty good that it could potentially happen, even if it's not, you know, a total overhaul to a whole feminist foreign policy, but at least little things. Um, I do want to mention two things that they brought up uh, in terms of female experts. I know even for my show, when I'm looking for experts, there's two sources that are really great. One is called She Source Media, which has women from all different disciplines and a lot of professors. And you know, you can search by subject. Tons of incredibly qualified women. They have to go through a vetting process in order to be on She Source. And the other one is Foreign Policy Interrupted. And they have a ton of experts based on, again, female experts based on the area and the topic. So, you know, the women are there. You just have to look for them and look a little bit harder. And there's so many databases now that are even popping up all over the place in other industries, women in tech, to basically highlight female voices and say, oh, you know, like Christine Lagarde used to say when she said that, um, you know, there need to be women on a board in France. And, the, you know, a man would say, oh, we don't know any women. She she would joke that she had a list that she'd pull out of her pocket and go, oh, here's a list of women I know that would be great on your board. And so it's there. It's just the intention and the resourcefulness. Everything has to be behind it. So I want to give a big thank you to Susan and Stephanie for coming on the show today. We've got lots more amazing guests lined up for the rest of the month. So I hope you'll continue to tune in on Fridays at 6 p.m. Eastern time. And a big thank you to Stream Inspectors who sponsored this show. So until next time, this is Samantha signing off. Take care.